Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to see you for worship. This is a great day for our church. Uh, we're getting really ready for the Christmas season. You've already heard about Christmas Eve. And, and I just want to, again, extend to you an invitation. If you have not yet uh, been baptized and that's your next step, what a great day to do that on Christmas Day. And so be sure and take that next step. Let me tell you another reason this is a great day. This is the first public service that we have at our Pacala campus. Thanks be to God. That is a wonderful thing. Uh, our folks in Pacala for six years have been setting up and tearing down, setting up and tearing down, and today they finally are home in, uh, in the building that your gifts have made a reality. You know, when you give to the Lord, amazing, miraculous things can happen. So we want to give a big shout out to the folks in Pacala. I want you to turn and find the camera that is closest to you. Can you do that? A TV camera? And they're watching us right now. I want you to wave and give them a big thumbs up and say, congratulations, Pacala. Great, great. Uh, and I know they're just having a great celebration. Well, we're in this message series entitled The King of Hope. And we base this on what happens when the wise men come. They don't go immediately and look for Jesus as a baby lying in a manger. What do they do? They go to Herod's palace. Do you remember what they ask? Where is he born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star and we've come to worship him. They recognized that a king had been born. Not just a king who had come to conquer and reign, but a king who had come to bring hope to the world. And so in this series, we've talked as we've moved through Psalm 18 about how Jesus comes and when we cry out to him, he listens to us. And then here's the great news. Not only does he listen to us, he rescues us. God is at work in our lives. Now today, we're going to ask, ask the question, what happens after God saves you? What happens after God saves you? When I was growing up, most of the emphasis was on go ahead, make your decision to follow Jesus, get baptized, and wait till you die. That gives you a lot to live for. And, and it seemed incomplete, and it was incomplete. Because the truth is, once we start following Jesus, there needs to be a response in our life. Do you remember when Jesus healed the nine lepers? You remember this story? Or ten lepers? And nine of them go away, but one comes back and says, thank you, one of them actually gets it, that Jesus working in our lives is the beginning of something, not the end of something. So, so what's the next step after Jesus saves you? Or we might ask it this way, how do you be like the one? The one guy who goes back and says, Jesus, thank you, what now? So we're looking at Psalm 18. If you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 18. This was a song sung by David toward the end of his life. He's thinking about all the times God had saved him. He cried out to God. God came through. And in this section of the psalm, starting in verse 20, David is going to lay out for us what comes after God saves you. Now remember, early Christians read this. And they said, this isn't just about David and God. This is about us and Jesus. So when we read this, we say, what do we do after Jesus saves us? And we can really sum this up 
like this. Knowing Jesus means knowing that you matter to God, but it also means God matters to you. Knowing Jesus means you know that you matter to God, but it also means God matters to you. David's going to show us what this looks like. And we're going to start in verse 20. The Lord has dealt with me, David says, according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. Now, verse 20 is going to set the tone for the next nine verses. What's David say? He says, the Lord has rewarded me. The word reward in Hebrew actually means to ripen. And I like that picture, don't you? The Lord ripens me. He ripens me. In other words, as I am doing right things, my relationship with God grows. And you get this, you know this. I mean, let's say there's a man and a woman and they get married. And as soon as they get married, he starts cheating on her, stepping out on her. He starts abusing her mentally, physically. Do they have a close marriage? Are they building intimacy in their life? You know this. So how can we expect to have a close relationship with God if we're not investing in it? If we are not seeking to be righteous. Now, righteous kind of gets mixed up in our heads because we think self-righteous. That's not what we're talking about. To be righteous actually means we are willing to do right things. Well, what are right things? In the Bible, there's several checklists of right things. One, the Ten Commandments. You can use that as a checklist. Am I doing these things? Another would be the part of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek. How meek am I? One that is helpful to me is found in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. And, and you may have heard us refer to this before. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So here's what I do. I kind of go through that list and I check myself. Am I loving? Do I have joy? Do I have peace? Am I patient? Am I kind? Am I good? Am I faithful? Am I gentle? Do I have self-control? And when I pray through this list, I get convicted. Convicted is a good old-fashioned word, which means God tells me, Clay, you're not doing real good at being loving. Clay, you're in a stretch right now where you are not joyful at all. In fact, you're finding not only is the glass half empty, you have kicked the glass over and it's fallen out. How regularly are you checking your righteousness, your right way of living with God? Now, the second part of the verse talks about the cleanness of hands. Now, obviously, David's not talking about washing your hands, although that's a good idea. He's talking about living a life where sin is not in control. Now, this is a simple idea. This is really hard to do. 
but we need to be sure that it's fixed in our mind. Not sinning is a next step toward Jesus. When I am not sinning, I'm actually taking a next step toward Jesus. We talk a lot about how Jesus forgives us and how there is grace and there is, but there's another step. It's saying, okay, I'm not going to keep doing this. Sin, the word means missing the mark. It's like shooting an arrow. I missed it, missed the target. So not sinning means I'm on target. I'm actually hitting the mark. I'm actually aiming my life where it should go. Now, in the next several verses, David is going to unpack what verse 20 teaches. So you're going to hear some themes repeat. In verse 21 and 22, David says, I have kept the ways of the Lord. I am not guilty of turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. You hear the two big ideas repeated, right? I I am keeping the ways of God, and I am not turning away from the ways of God. So to keep the ways of God means you do the right things. What are the ways of God? Well, Jesus summed it up like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. How are you doing? Are you keeping the ways of God? Are you investing in your relationship with God? Are you loving your neighbor as yourself. To love someone means that you invest in them. You want good for them. And that's easy to picture with our neighbors. But what about wanting good for God? Sometimes I think about this, about God, how can I make your life easier? How could I make your life easier? And it's easy for me then to think, well, God, if you killed off the dictator of Russia and North Korea, that would make everybody's life easier. But God reminds me to start with me. How can I make God's life easier? Well, not sinning would be a good start. Investing in my relationship with him would be helpful. In both of these verses... David is saying, I'm not going to turn aside from God. I'm not going to set God aside. I'm not going to turn from his way. How often do we do this? How often do we say, okay, God, I mean, we don't say this out loud, but we say it in our heads. We say, God, okay, I know what I should do, but I'm going to do it this way because I think this way might be better or this way satisfies more of my needs or this way will fill me up more. Do you realize what we're doing? We're saying we're smarter than God. Well, are you? Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States, was a brilliant thinker. But Jefferson had trouble with Jesus. Jefferson did not believe that Jesus was divine. Jefferson did not believe the miracles really happened. So he took two copies of the King James Bible and some blank paper some glue and a razor. And he cut out the parts of the New Testament that described Jesus' miracles, his resurrection, and any reference to Jesus being the Son of God. 
And what he wound up with was a selection of teachings of Jesus and about Jesus. About Jesus's ethic, if you will. But you see the flaw in Jefferson's thinking, don't you? The flaw in his thinking is, I know more than God knows, therefore I get to correct God. That is always the danger of being brilliant. We assume then that we get to correct everyone else and even God about how wrong he is. You see the flaw? If there is a God, and I believe there is, doesn't it make sense that he's smarter than you? He knows more than you? And then maybe we should come to him in a spirit of humility? We'll come back to that in just a moment. I find that we do this ourselves. That we actually take parts of the Bible and say, okay, I am going to do this, but I see this in the Bible and I just don't really like it. I'm not comfortable with it. Therefore, I'm going to dismiss it. I'm not going to live by that. Um, I've told this story before, but it's one of my favorite stories, so I'm going to tell it again. Uh, When I was pastor in rural Kentucky, the um, oldest ladies Sunday school class, which is what uh, we used to call life groups, um, they didn't have a teacher. I was pressed into duty as the substitute teacher. Now, keep in mind, at this point, I am like 27 years old. These ladies are in their 70s and their 80s, including the matriarch of the church, Miss Sue Flowers, who is 90 years old, has been there, you know, forever. And I am teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and we come to the place where Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you. And I look at these ladies who are spiritually mature matriarchs of the church, and I said, what do you think it means? And there is silence. And Miss Sue Flowers finally speaks up to break the silence and says, well, it can't mean what it says. Guess what, Miss Sue? It means what it says. Do some examination of your own heart. Is there part of God's way that you want to set aside because it doesn't suit you? Now, David goes on in verse 23 and 24. He says, I have been blameless before him, before God, and have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. You hear how these themes are being repeated. Now, when David says, I'm blameless, is he saying that he is without sin? The word blameless in Hebrew means to have integrity. It means to be sound. It means to tell yourself the truth. That's why you need to daily confess to the Lord the truth about your life. Confession is not just a ritual reciting of sins and saying, God, forgive me for my sins, but it's actually pausing and doing some in-depth work and saying, God, I need to confess to you. I've tried to do things on my own today. God, I treated some people as objects today. God, let's just deal in reality. I still hold some hate and bitterness toward this person because they have hurt me and harmed me. That's confession. That's why it's good for the soul. 
David says, look, I'm working to keep myself from sin. When he talks about God rewarding me according to my righteousness, David's just reiterating what he said before. You know, because God matters to me, I'm going to do my best to do the right things, to live in the way of God. And I'm going to remember, not sinning is a next step toward Jesus. So I'm going to try to live with clean hands. I'm going to realize that my sin, is, it's, it's, it's like a clogged drain. Anybody here ever had a clogged drain? Yeah, what do you do when you have a clogged drain? Well, first thing you do is you get some Drano, you pour it down, you hope it breaks up the clog. And when that doesn't work, guys, we go to the hardware store, we buy a plumber snake, and we try to break the clog with a plumber, plumber snake. And after we tear up the plumbing, our wife says what? Call the plumber, which is what we probably should have done in the first place. Sin is a clog between you and God. It's ugly, it's nasty, it blocks the flow. Not sinning means I'm not going to put things in the sink that clog it. I'm going to do my best to make sure that this relationship stays open. Now, David is going to go on. In the next few verses, it's, it's neat. He, he's going to talk about God's character and how God interacts with people. And so he's going to give us a phrase and then echo the phrase. And you'll see how it unfolds in verse 25. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. This makes sense. When you're faithful in a relationship, faithfulness improves. I, I, I dated this girl in college about three times, took her out three times. And the third time, I was kind of major crushing on her. And I know people don't do this anymore, but I said, would you be my girlfriend? You know, I, I, I really like you. Would you be my girlfriend? And uh, she said, hmm, let me think about it. And I thought this was wonderful news. She's going to think about it, probably pray about it, maybe even fast about it. I'm that important to her. And what do you think she was really telling me? Boy, y'all are real quick. Okay, so a couple of days later, I call her back, and it's like, hey, Hey, I just wanted to see if you're doing anything tonight. Maybe we could go out and maybe we could talk a little bit more about being boyfriend, girlfriend. And she said, let me think about that. That's just great news. I'm still in the ball game. Yeah, it's amazing all the women right now who are going, no, you're not. And so uh, a couple of days later, I called her back because some people call it being thick in the head. I call it determined. I called her back. I said, hey, just wanted to kind of check in. And she said, Clay, I just want to be right. I got friend zoned before we even knew that was a thing. Guess what? We were not going to be friends. She would walk across the other side of campus to avoid me. I think she dropped one of her classes so we wouldn't be in the same class together. And do you know what that did to me? Did I keep investing in that relationship? No, I'm not that stupid. <laughs> I didn't keep calling her after that. I got the message. I kind of grieved for a day or two. And then by the third day, I called another girl. 
That's a great thing about going to college where the girls outnumber the guys. What? Somebody said amen up here. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to go any further. Hey, so, so this makes sense to us. When we're faithful to God, God's faithful to us. And the reason sometimes we wonder, God, are you faithful? Is because we're not being very faithful. And let's face it, when you're not faithful in a relationship, you begin to project onto the other person in the relationship that they're not faithful. And so if you think God is not faithful, what's going on with you? David goes on, he says, to the blameless, the people with integrity, you show yourself blameless. God, you show yourself as having integrity. Now, a lot of times we get angry at God because things are going on. We don't understand. God, why did you let this happen? So here's what I want you to think about doing. Try standing blameless before God and say, God, I am innocent. You're the one to blame. Now, sometimes you need to pray that prayer. That's what Job did. But what did Job find out? That God was blameless. It's so easy to project onto God our own unhappiness and to say, God, you're the one at fault. Verse 26, to the pure you show yourself pure. As we clean up the sin patterns in our life, as we break that clog, we see God more clearly. We, we experience God's energy, God's love to a greater degree in our lives. So how do you clean up the sin patterns in your life? Those of you familiar with the 12 steps, remember the first three steps? You admit that you have a problem and you're powerless over it. You acknowledge that there is a higher power, God, who can restore you to sanity, and you ask him to remove what you cannot remove yourself. And we begin to see God more clearly. We see his purity. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then, and then David makes a shift. I mean, he's kind of laid out for us, you know, uh, if you're faithful, God, you'll see how faithful God is. If you're blameless, you'll see how blameless God is. If you're pure, you'll see how pure God is. But now he twists. Look at the last part of verse 26. But to the devious, you show yourself shrewd. What, what does that mean? The word devious means to be twisted. It was actually used sometimes to describe a twisted bowel. What does it mean to be devious? It means that you are twisted in your mind, in your thinking. Now, I know you know some people who are twisted, but all of us have this capability. It's when we choose the wrong reference point for truth in our life. Now, David goes on. He says, you save the humble. You get this. You get this. I mean, if, if somebody is drowning, what do they have to say? Help! I'm drowning. It takes humility to say, God, I need you. Two kinds. The first is the initial humility. God, I cannot fix my own life. I need you to save me. I want to become your child. The second is a daily humility. God, I can't do this day without you. How would your life change if you started praying, God, I can't do this day without you? 
And again, David brings in a contrast at the end. He says, but bring low those whose eyes are haughty. You save the humble, but you bring low those whose eyes are haughty. You know what it means to have haughty eyes? It means you look down your nose. It means you think you're better than everybody else. It means you think you're in control of your life and you try to assert control so that others think about you the way you want them to think about you. You may remember from history, Joseph Stalin, the brutal dictator of Russia. Hitler killed 20 million people. It's estimated that Stalin was responsible for the death of over 40 million people, most of them Russians. Stalin, after he succeeded Lenin, wanted everybody to remember him and not pay so much attention to Lenin. So he had monuments erected to him throughout the Soviet Union. He even took the unprecedented step of renaming the city Volgograd to Stalingrad because he thought his name was better than the historic name of the city. Stalin was so feared that in 1953, when he left instructions about what to do after he died, his instructions were carried out. His instructions were, I want my body embalmed, I want it to be displayed in the tomb of Lenin next to Lenin's body. And so that's what happened in 1953. But eight years later, in 1961, Nikita Khrushchev ordered that Stalin's body be removed from Lenin's tomb and be placed in an obscure part of the Kremlin, away from the crowds, and that instead of an elaborate grave, it be covered with a simple stone and a simple bust of Lenin that acknowledged his birth and his death. Why? You may be the most powerful man on earth right now, but you don't get the last word about your life. You don't get the last word about your life. Who ultimately gets the last word about your life? Jesus. Jesus. And God has a way of bringing low the proud. So David finishes in 29 and 30, or 28 and 29, this is what he says, you, Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. You gotta love the imagery here. David says, I look at all the things that God has done for me. I look at how I want to show God that he matters to me. And, and, and as this relationship grows, man, it's like God keeps pouring into me. He gives me oil for my lamp. I remember all the lights then those days were provided by oil lamps. If you grew up going to camp like I did, you may have learned this old song. Give me oil in my lamp. Keep me burning for the Lord. Give me oil in my lamp, I pray. Okay, I'm the only one who learned that song. Um, it's, it's this idea that God's going to give you the energy you need. And, and, and then David says, you're going to shine a light in the darkness. The darkness is the place where things are hidden. You remember when you believed there were monsters under your bed that lived there in the dark? God's light shines and says, look, whatever you're afraid of, it's not as that big. It's not as big as you think. And God pouring his strength into you means that when you face an army, you're going, I'm not alone. Don't you remember when David went out and to face Goliath, he says, look, I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord. I'm not by myself. And I love this last part. With my God, I can scale a wall. When there's an obstacle between where I need to be and where I am, 
God's going to give me the power and the strength to scale that wall. Don't you see, knowing Jesus means that you know you matter to God. But it also means God matters to you. So I want to ask you two questions. The first question is, do you know you matter to God? Do you really know you matter to God? You know, that's why on this Sunday before Christmas, we're going to take the Lord's Supper so that we can remember that we matter to God. That Jesus didn't just come as a cute baby. He came to be the king of hope. All of you should have received one of these little containers for the elements of the Lord's Supper. If you'll be sure and get that, and if you don't have one, just raise your hand, and we have some deacons who will get that to you. Got a couple of folks. If you're watching online, you might want to slip out to the kitchen real quick, get a cracker, and get some juice or some water so that you can participate with us. And I want you just to hold this remembrance of the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. Just hold it. And I want you to listen to this song. And I want you to understand how much you matter to God.